Hello, and welcome to The Art of Listening, a podcast about classical music, conducting, composition, and the business of music. This is season two, episode two. Today, we're talking all about working with a soloist. And today, of course, I'm joined by Gabriel Gordon. Gabe, how are you today? Welcome to The Art of Listening. I'm doing great. Um, Really looking forward to this conversation with Brett. I am so looking forward to today. Today, we have an amazing guest from the New Jersey, New York, metropolitan, Philadelphia area, an amazing viola player, soloist all around the world, Brett Dubner. We have a great uh, interview with him today. You don't want to miss it and definitely get to the end because he gives us some pretty interesting answers to some of my toughest podcasting questions. But Gabe, what's been going on in your world? You've been doing some pretty interesting things on your YouTube channel, haven't you? Yeah, so uh, I was very moved by what, what's been happening in Ukraine, and uh, I looked up their national anthem, and it's, it's really uh, has, has a lot to do, unfortunately, with what's going on there. So I recorded it, I arranged it and recorded it for solo violin on the channel. I love it. It is an amazing piece of music. And, and Gabe, the one thing I noticed is not only did you write it out as a melody, you also wrote it out as a harmony, didn't you? Yeah, I I just harmonized it. Uh, you know, pretty simple harmonization uh, for solo violin, but uh, it's it's pretty effective. And uh, you know, part part of this has to do with also my family. My my grandmother was actually born in Lviv, and so I feel a pretty deep connection to what's going on there. Now, when we're looking at everything in the world of classical music, last week we talked all about creating rehearsal strategies, working with an orchestra, getting up on that podium as a as a regular conductor or as a guest conductor and really making the most out of that time together. And today is no exception, but we're taking this concept one step further because we're going to be talking about how do you do all of those things? but we're adding a soloist. Now, you've had the opportunity to work with a soloist. What is that like to to collaborate with somebody, to bring in a guest, whether it be a friend, a professional, however, and say to the orchestra, we're doing this, we're going to do this together. What is it like to conduct with a soloist? Well, it's really much more of a collaboration uh, between two people rather than you with the orchestra. It's It's you communicating to the orchestra what you and the soloist are collaborating with. And uh, it's, it's actually uh, quite a bit like chamber music. And uh, you are accompanying the soloist, but at the same time, uh, you are both telling a story. Well, what does that mean? Is it, is, it a, is it a trio? Is it conductor, orchestra, soloist? Or is it conductor and every individual member of the orchestra and the soloist happens to be there playing their own particular sheet of music? How do you, how do you build that family unit? Uh, I would say that you know, you're, you're doing one piece and it's one statement. So really what you're doing is, is saying one thing. It's not really a trio. It's you know, the... The orchestra as an entity, you could see it that way with the conductor and the soloist. Um, But really, it's all one thing. And does that matter what the size of the piece is? I mean, you and I have done, uh, you know, concerto competitions where you have these seven to 13 year old come up and do their thing. And, you know, that's a wonderful experience. But sometimes that's soloist versus orchestra. And I've seen us work with, you know, highly you know, world-renowned professionals doing Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, et cetera, where there's just so much connection between everything. 
How do you prepare for working with the variety of soloists that you get a chance to use every week? Well, uh, first of all, your regular preparation, know the score backwards, forwards, sideways, and upside down so that you can actually, you know, collaborate uh, with the soloist. And, uh, you know, the soloist has probably performed this piece, you know, at least a dozen times already. So you have to be prepared for those conversations uh, with the soloists. You want to be able to work with them beforehand. We're going to talk about that with Brett. And I, you know, really it's all about the preparation uh, and as well as in some cases uh, dealing with the individual personalities and the experience or the lack of experience that they have. I am excited to get into our interview today with Brett Dubner. But before we do, I want to remind everybody that The Art of Listening comes out on all of our major podcasting platforms from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and of course, this being a very special interview, we're going to be doing it on our YouTube channel. Just do a search for Art of Listening, and of course, all the show notes are going to be over here for episode number 16. Our guest today is a fantastic viola player who is not only globally known, but also recently completed a few amazing albums that are going to be coming out this year. I want to welcome from the New Jersey Symphony, Mr. Brett Dubner. Brett, how are you today? Welcome to The Art of Listening. Thanks a lot, Jack. It's good to be here. I am so excited to have you on. And, you know, Gabe and I were talking a little bit about working with a soloist in our last uh, episode here. And I'm so excited that we're going to be talking not only about, you know, working with a soloist as a conductor, but more importantly, working with a conductor as a soloist. But before we get into all of that stuff, Brett, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm originally from California, um, but I've kind of lived all over the, the country. Um, and I went to Eastman for my undergrad and my master's degree. Um, I've been living in the New Jersey, New York City area for the past uh, 30 years. And um, I, I, uh, I teach at Queens College in, in New York. Hmm. And I, I just, I love playing the viola. <laughs> you know, I found you through social media, which uh -huh. we're gonna get into later on because I'm sitting there going through all these music things and I went, wow. A viola player he's doing something pretty cool and i just started binge watching and binge watching and binge watching how'd you get into it i know you said that you started on violin you switched over look this is coming from a viola player myself why the viola um well i've i've always found myself gravitating towards the dark side of the violin so i find myself always playing way up here in the g because i just love that that sound world and when I was a freshman at Eastman, um, uh, I was in one of the quartets there, and uh, the violist in my group um, said, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to the dorm and sleep. I'm not feeling well. And I said, can I borrow your viola and play it a little bit, and I'll bring it back to the dorm? Sure. She had this beautiful little 15-inch old hill viola, really nice viola. And my best friend at the time was the cellist in the group. And so everyone left except for, for he and I, and um, I got the viola and I just started just playing open strings and I immediately started tearing up. And he said, oh man, oh well. Yeah, <laughs> because we, played, we were inseparable. We were playing Ravel and Kodai and Brahms double and all that. Um, so that was sort of the beginning of the end when it came to my um, life as a violinist. And for the next four, three and a half years, um, I started studying with Martha Katz on viola while also finishing my violin degree. 
And uh, it was the greatest thing because I loved contemporary music and I loved playing challenging pieces. And so I was the go-to guy for anyone who wanted to do Piero Lunaire or anything of that kind of ilk. So um, it really kind of opened a lot of doors for me, having a quasi-violin technique, whatever that means, um, and then switching to viola. Um, also, I had a real insatiable desire to learn music, especially new music, um, uh, living composers. So th it all kind of fell into place for me um, that way. Do you have a, a preference between uh, orchestral music, chamber music, solo music? Like, where do you, where does your heart lie in this? Oh, that that's the easiest question in the world for me. <laughs> I am my happiest when I'm standing in front of an orchestra playing a concerto. Yeah. And it's not even uh, a hubris thing, although it certainly sounds like it. For me, that's when I feel the freest. That's when my sound can just be personal. When you're in orchestra, and I've been very blessed to play with great orchestras, London Symphony, Rochester, New Jersey, great orchestras. And in those situations, it's all about you being one cog in the wheel, a part of a greater being, which is great. And I've had wonderful chair music experiences, two professional quartets, a piano trio, a guitar duo. Um, and all of those experiences are, are, are also very much about blends and matching vibrato and all that. But when you're the soloist, it's really your story to tell or the composer's story. And so that's what I love. I, I love the idea of playing for as many people as possible. I remember a couple of years ago, I was, I teach at the festival, a uh, round top festival in Texas and was doing the Walton. There was a couple thousand people in the audience. And afterwards, this, this lovely little old lady came up to me and said, young man, I felt like you were playing just for me. And I said, I was playing just for you. <laughs> like, you don't get that in a quartet or an orchestra. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I, I, I love that story. You know, being able to have so many different avenues to share your love, to share your work. You know, Gabe, last week on the episode, we were talking all about rehearsal strategies, making sure that you choose the right music. As a conductor, why is it important for you not only to do the big symphonic works, but also program music to work with soloists? Oh, well, I, I would say because it's really just a, a completely different take on uh, symphonic music, you know, especially when you're talking about uh, some of the bigger composers, uh, Brahms in particular, uh, really, he, he, his, his first piano concerto famously was his first attempt at a symphony. It's like, no, I'm gonna make that into a concerto. Um, but uh, concertos really take, take the orchestra and, and put it in <laughs> sort of in its place, really. When it comes to when it comes to being and, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, don't realize that the word concerto really means, you know, to go against one another. Um, and uh, as the conductor, it's really my job to make sure that the soloist wins in that way. And what do you think about this, Brett? I've seen a lot of, you know, tr traditional concert programming, if there is such a thing, you know, overture, uh, solo, halftime. Yeah symphonic you know symphonic work like i mean what, what's your thoughts on all this the, obviously the soloist is is often a draw for audiences but i was thinking about what gabe said the word concerto also the word concert to be in concert means to be combined 
yeah, right. tandem. So in a way, um, I, I kind of prefer that version. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's 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 the word the word can mean both things, right. which is actually what what a concerto really is all about. Yeah, the, the word compromise used to mean two people with slightly different views come together. Iron things out, and what you get is a better idea. Now it means to make something weak. You know? <laughs> I know it's kind of kind of weird. Or, or yeah. God forbid, politics. To be a politician used to mean to represent people. Now it just means what's in it for me. You know, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> so I want to start off today by asking the chicken and the egg question. When you are a conductor, or when you are a soloist, what comes first? Now, Gabe, you and I have worked a lot with orchestras where we had concerto competitions people said here's the piece i want to play with you and i know you've also been in a situation where you said i have this orchestra how do i find a soloist so gabe let me start with you how do you choose a soloist how do you program for a soloist how do you build a concert around i know that's a half an hour conversation right there but talk to us a little bit about the idea of finding choosing and then i'm going to throw it to brett and go all right you're the soloist how do you get work so gabe go for it well, I, you know, there are so many factors involved, like, like you were saying, uh, you know, from, from the budget to what is being programmed on there, what, um, you know, what, you know, people specialize in, uh, you know, it, it kind of uh, goes without saying that if, if you, if you want to hire a violist as a soloist, um, probably the thing that's going to interest me uh, um, as well as, you know, somebody like Brett the most is, you know, doing a new work or a relatively new work um, for something like that. So, uh, you know, that needs to be taken into consideration for the overall program, um, you know, as well as the budget, um, you know, as well as, um, you know, the, the level of soloist that we're, you know, we're talking about. And, you know, the, like Brett was saying, the the draw of the soloist um you know versus how much they're going to cost as as well as many other things and um you know a lot of the time i you know it's also who who do would i rather work with um you know who do i who am who's interesting uh to me and who i think would be interesting to the audience Brett, we're going to talk a little bit later in the show about marketing, and I want to really deep dive into that. But on the surface here, you are the soloist. Do you have a a way of, you know, here's my resume. I'm going to put it out there. Do you have a bunch of conductor friends where you're like, hey, can I do this? How do you start to figure out what ensembles you'd like to work with, and how do you make those dreams come true? Um, certainly at the beginning of this um, part of my life, which really started when I was about 40. That's when I decided I really want to be a soloist. Um, it was about casting a very wide net. Um, I felt that I had attributes that would uh, be compelling. One, I'm a violist. That's unusual. Um, two, uh, I'm not $40,000 a night. That's, that's good. Um, and also, I can probably offer a really exciting world premiere. Good publicity. That's three good reasons to take a look at me. And um, I've been very fortunate to, to know a lot of wonderful composers. And so when I got my start doing some really great pieces and got engagements with those, um, I just began to get more, uh, more experience. And um, for me, definitely championing new works was my uh, key to the door. It really was. And then not soon after that, um, 
as my friend base of conductors grew, I started getting invited to do um, the more standard concertos. Um, one of the reasons, um, as Gabe said, if you're talking viol, it's probably going to be a new work or a pretty new work, is because we just don't have the 40 standard violin concertos. We have like four or five, you know. And so because of that, um, partly the history of the viola, but also um, people just didn't write for viola, in, in, you know, that much until Hindemith in the 40s, 50s, you know, so really it took a long time. But now the, the level of playing is just so high that it's it's really a great instrument to solo with. Um, so I, I would say that's how I would approach um, projecting myself to a, a would-be collaborator. Um, it would almost always be um, some sort of a cold call, usually in the in the format of a, a letter that I'd write as an email and and just, you know, say, I hope you're having a good summer. I'm having a great summer. I just got back doing this. And I make sure that I have my own YouTube channel where I have that a link to that. And so I have links of things that I'm talking about. But I, I think my, my nature is kind of cordial anyway. And so it's a little bit disarming to hear a, a soloist not talk like they're a, a jerk. So, you know, it's it's kind of helpful, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And uh, it's just one thing led to another. I, I just, and, and I also love working with conductors because really the conductor and the soloist um, have the same task. We're trying to make sense of the storyline and, and make it work with the orchestra. So we're all collaborators. And I think that collegiality um, has served me well because I enjoy that aspect. Well, take us through these conversations on here, right? Gabe has an orchestra, and he wants to program a concerto. Um, Gabe, do you have a Rolodex that says who can play this concerto? Or, hey, let me call Brett. I wonder what he's interested in. Like, what goes through the thought process of a conductor of a board when they're programming a, a concert or a, a year? Yeah, I mean, you know, the it, and, you know, it depends on on how many concerts you're going to give with that orchestra, uh, you know, and so how and 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 what kind of orchestra it is, if it's a if it's a community or a semi-professional orchestra, uh, you know, that's that's one thing where they, you know, they probably do like maybe three or four concerts a year as opposed to a, you know, a full time orchestra uh, that does, you know, 30, 40, you know, 50 concerts a year. You want to devote a certain amount of concerts that have a soloist on it, uh, depending on how many concerts you have. And so if you have a limited amount of those, then, you know, you might want one concert without a soloist. And, you know, that there, like I said, there are so many things that go into it. Um, generally, with, uh, say, community and uh, semi-professional orchestras, as well as, um, you know, youth symphonies, um, you're not going to have that many professional soloists on in a given season. So, uh, you know, generally when, when I was doing that on a regular basis, I kind of had my list of people that I wanted to work with and, you know, would, would try to fit them in, you know, within the framework of 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 uh, a season um but uh if you know like i said we're talking about a, a full-time um orchestra you have a certain amount of spots 
there, that's more spots that you'd be able, you know, to work with people that you want to work with. I mean, I think I, I think that's really important. And, you know, Britt kind of touched on this a little while ago um, that, you know, the, the relationship between the conductor and soloist uh, really is is extremely important when it comes to the final product. And so, uh, you know, as the conductor, you want to make sure that you're working with you know, people you like, basically. <laughs> Brett, what does that look like on your end? I know you've got a, a vast repertoire of things, but I'm sure this isn't the same in the, in the conducting world. Like this year, I've got four concertos. How many different orchestras can I play these with as opposed to, oh my goodness, every weekend I've got a different major concerto. How does it look from your end as far as you know, right. There's only 24 hours in a day to practice on these things, and you want to. <laughs> between, um, between this May and November, I'm playing 10 different concertos, <laughs> actually, and two two uh, recordings in Europe with different orchestras doing four concertos, and two of them are premieres. Um, for me, um, I, I like to think I can get along with almost anyone. So, um, uh, you know, you touched a little bit, Gabe, on the on the. Um, the, the regional or the community orchestra. I actually really love working with the less experienced orchestras also because it's it's a great growing experience for everyone. I tend to encourage them, you know, and usually you can then talk more than you could ever talk with a, a, a major orchestra. Then you just kind of, you know, play and hope for the best. But if it's a youth orchestra or if it's a, um, you know, a, a, a younger, uh, a less experienced orchestra, they actually really enjoy the, the give and take Right. And we're, we're all in it together. But even like, I remember playing with Grand Rapids a couple of years ago, doing a, a, a new American composer's uh, concerto. And they loved the back and forth. And they hadn't had a violist in like 20 years. And they said, <laughs> you kind of changed what we thought a violist could do. So let's have you back. Um, so I felt that was not specifically an endorsement of my abilities, but more just uh, an endorsement that the viola as a, as a, a solo instrument has great possibilities. And now everyone's writing for viola because it really is a fantastic solo instrument. So let's walk down this here. You get asked to do a concerto um, and we're gonna say it's 2022, right? Like we live in the digital age. Um, is there such a thing as having virtual rehearsals, digital rehearsals, meeting with the conductor on a visual medium and going over solo passages or is it still, hey, let's come to the concert hall together and hash this out? I mean, well, I'm assuming you work you work with orchestras across the country here. Um, even before COVID, um, I would very often have a Zoom or a Skype or a FaceTime yeah. session with the conductor if it's an unfamiliar piece. If, even if it's like something that's not unfamiliar, like Martinu, that's not played that much, but it's very standard. Right. If, if it's an orchestra that only is going to have two rehearsals, it would be really nice, depending on when I'm flying in, if there's not time to get together beforehand, then we, we've got to get together. But more times than not, um, we'll meet in my hotel and we'll just do it. You know, next, the, this coming October, I go back to the Fort Wayne Phil um, and I'm doing a new concerto by Patrick O'Malley. Hmm. Three years ago, I did the Daniel Poor concerto that he wrote for me with them. And we had such a good time that uh, they said, we want to have you back. And um, so we're doing this other concerto. Um, but I know that uh, I'll be working with the conductor before I get there because it's a it's going to be a very challenging piece. Patrick's a, a great composer, but it's going to be hard. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I think I think the the meeting between the conductor and the soloist is absolutely critical. Um, you know, I've met both both soloists and conductors who, you know, kind of eschew that uh, for for whatever reason. Um, you know, me personally, the more time I can have um, with and, you know, just e even, you know, standard repertoire, you know, you know, Beethoven, Brahms, uh, you name it. I want to work uh, with the soloist uh, to, as Brett said, you know, figure out um, how we're going to tell that particular story. And, it, and it's also, it, and also, it goes beyond just surviving the concert and not having a mishap. It, right. it, it's about how deep can we go? You know, it's for me when I'm playing a, a, a concerto with several different orchestras, it's a different piece each time. Right. Just playing a sonata with a different pianist, it, it's it's a new piece, and so I want to have that gestation period available to us, you know. And and very often you'll have uh, orchestras that only have one concert, so that's it. So you really want to be beyond the prepared stage, you know. Yeah, and and you know, it's one of the reasons why I really love working with student soloists um, because. Uh, you know, very often it'll be the very first time they're playing in front of an orchestra. And so there's the educational aspect, but um, they don't mind like a lot of time <laughs> where where you're working with them and where you can go, you know, a lot more in depth into how it is what you're saying. So, Brett, at the beginning of the podcast, Gabe and I mentioned that this is a show about the love of music, but it's also about the business of music. And I'm going to pick up on something that you had mentioned a little earlier about price. How does an orchestra, how does a conductor, and I'm not talking the New Jersey, like, like, you know, a friend calls you and says, we need a soloist. Who brings up money? How does all of that work? Obviously, there's a budget, but there's also travel expenses, but then there's your time. How does all of that work? Whether it be a, we're gonna play the, the, the viola concerto that you've had in your back pocket to, hey, I just, I just made this one for you and you have to now learn it from scratch. What's the money conversation look, look like from both the soloist and from the conductor point of view? Well, um, repertoire doesn't really factor in on the price, um, for, at least for the soloist. Um, I think that the simple answer to that not terribly simple question is that there will be this natural um, compromise between what a, a soloist's um, um, precedence or market value has been demonstrated versus what is possible with any given orchestra. Um, and then within there, there's a, a flexibility. So for instance, um, if I have the chance to perform a, a concerto with an orchestra in another country, but they don't have the kind of budget that a typical American orchestra does. Um, I am I'm not so full of myself that I say, well, I will only do it for this amount of money. Sorry. No, I, I want to play concerts. And what I do then is I get creative and suggest, why don't we reach out to the local university and have them pay for a master class? Or they can pay for my flight. Because very often in countries certainly in Latin America, the flight is a problem. And it's mm. not even, I mean, it's a financial problem, but it's also uh, not political, but there's a lot of bureaucracy involved with paying for international flights. 
And so very often, if I'm going to be in one country, I'll tell a lot of conductors and orchestras, hey, I'm going to be in town here. Really? Oh, you want to play this? You know, and so <laughs> that's, that's what happens. Um, so you really have to be creative about how to, to make ends meet. Um, for me, um, if I really wanted to be wealthy, I'd probably be a dentist. You know? So I'm not really, you know, for me, it's about loving what I do and doing what I love. So, you know. <laughs> I, I was always told that as a soloist working with the conductor is very much like pulling teeth so you're right there <laughs> with the dentist I, I'm, I'm very lucky i mean i first of all i work really hard so i usually come pretty prepared and they don't have much to say to me because they're usually they have their hands full it's a new piece that they don't know or yeah. the orchestra may have some inherent challenges blah 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 you know so um usually the um the, the part of the equation that is me and the conductor is sort of the breath of fresh air part. You know? <laughs> well, let, let, let's dive into that. Okay, so you're at the venue, you're at the gig, whatever. How do you have those conversations? How do you make sure that it's, you know, it's not your version of the piece, it's not the orchestra's, it's, it's that collaboration. But I know what it's like from a conductor's point of view. Talk to us, Brett, about that soloist point of view. You're working with a group, you're trying to feel them out. Mm -hmm. Things are going well. Things aren't going well. You need to change something on the fly. What is that like for you to have to do that collaboration? It's, it's a great question, Jeff. I think one really significant unknown in your question is, is the composer there also? Right. And I love, I love that because not only does it, it – well, this makes it easy. What do you want? It settles everything, doesn't it? <laughs> like, yeah. and, and I really do feel like um, – um, not to, to go off, off tangent here, but I think one of the reasons I don't feel nerves when I perform is that it's really not about me. It's about the composer's story. And so for me, I love it when the composer's there because then the conductor, myself, and the orchestra are all working to try to do what the composer wishes. Now, if it's a, or if it's a situation where the composer isn't there, um, but it was written for me, which is usually the case, then the orchestra usually defers to my my thoughts. But I'm actually extremely flexible in wanting it to be, uh, uh, you know, something that, that's fresh, you know? So uh, it's it's never been an antagonistic situation for me, actually. G Gabe, I'm going to toss this at you, but have you ever worked with... I don't want to, I don't want to ask the question that way, but when you've worked with the composer, who, when you've worked with the soloist who's a little bit of a diva, uh, that's, that's a great question. Um, okay. <laughs> He's turning red folks. <laughs> I know. <laughs> There's an audio version of this. Right? He, has, yeah, he, has, he has somebody in mind. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. So, uh, you know, in, in that particular case, um, really, you know, it's, it's, it's a really, unfortunately more about just a, neg a negotiation, um, you know, the you know the soloist wants to do it a particular way um in in the particular case that that jeff is is talking about the orchestra was actually having trouble um you know doing what that soloist wanted to do um and so it was more about uh really keeping the peace between the orchestra and the soloist <laughs> in that sense and, uh, sure. and, 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 you know, the thing is, is that, 
you know, I, I feel that an important part of that, um, of having, having the, the concert, you know, go as planned in that particular case um, was taking responsibility mm-hmm. for it and just saying, you know, this is, this is what's happening. Um, you know, the orchestra is going to be able to come a certain distance. Could you please, you know, meet us halfway? It's, it's it's difficult, right? Like I, I remember being in the viola section of the Mendelssohn violin concerto. We get to the end of the cadenza. You have to do a certain speed to make that bow move. Right. The orchestra just couldn't do it. The soloist is like, but I got to go at that speed. It's all a matter of compromise. And I think that's the one thing that I love about this conversation here is the conductor needs to know what's going on to make sure that they are, as we've said before, Gabe, that conduit for the composer, that that person that's saying, OK, here's what it should be, whether the per- whether the conductor's there or not. The soloist is an equal member of that orchestra. And, and I think it's important to think that they're equal members of the orchestra, but they're not just there to be musicians. They're there to make sure that they're putting on a show. If you guys have any questions about this, we are always available. Please make sure that you head on over to our website over at gabrielgordon.net, and we would love to hear from you. This is The Art of Listening, and today our guest is Brett Dubner. Brett, I wanted to ask you a couple important questions about marketing. You know, we said at the beginning of this, I found you through LinkedIn. That's the really weirdest place to ever find a viola player. But I found you through LinkedIn, found you through all the great marketing Gabe and I have been working on our marketing. I know you're out there doing your thing. Let's talk a little bit about that, right? Because there's a lot of people who are listening to this saying, I have a passion, I have a baton, I have a viola, I have a whatever. How in this world do I get found? So first question for you, man, what is the importance of social media? What is the, like, how did you get into all of this stuff knowing that if I want to be heard, I got to do this myself? I think the interconnectivity of the internet has been overall a great thing for uh, the arts. Um, you know, even though the whole world is now much smaller because you can FaceTime someone from Cambodia and someone from Colorado at the same time, you couldn't do that, you know, 30 years ago. Um, but also what I've found is that there's this natural migratory need birds of a feather do flock together you know and so when you're putting your stuff out there people with similar passions are going to gravitate towards that just like you're at a party with a bunch of strangers there's always this one person that everyone's talking to and it's because they have this magnetic uh, uh, um you know uh, attraction or they they have this real zeal for what they do and so i think for me, I've used social network, um, you know, the, the, the basic platforms, uh, MySpace, way back when, you know, right. ancient <laughs> history. I used to call it MyFace because I got confused what was what. Um, but it, it was a great way to reach out to conductors and colleagues and string players and teachers and whoever um, and just share your passion for what you do. And there was this community that was very much supportive of of everybody you know in their field and so that kind of international collegiality i think really helped to give me the courage to say you know let's let's do this and so i really used facebook and all those as a way of self-promotion not in a vanity way but in a way to reach out in a real development and marketing sense 
to would-be collaborators who are conductors or artistic directors or festival organizers or whatever. Um, so it was really helpful. But also um, what was very important for me was to really work on collecting as much data as I could, meaning if I'm doing a concert, film it. There's going to be 30 seconds that sounds good. There's got to, you know, you're going to find something that you can use. Right. Um, and since I often do new works, it's actually of interest to people. Um, and so I have a YouTube channel that has over 600 videos of different pieces. Um, and it's a great uh, resource for people to discover new works. It's a great resource for me to be able to send links to a conductor. You don't have to talk their ear off, just send them a link. And if they click on it and like what they hear, you're home. And the thing is, if, if they don't, then it wouldn't have mattered because no manager in the world is going to get them to like you if they listen to you and they don't like you, right? So who needs a manager? Just do it right. yourself, right? <laughs> right? No, it's it's interesting. I, I think that one of the things that is definitely missing in, in conservatory training is uh, this kind of training. And uh, one of the keys to that is... Uh, what we call word of mouth marketing. And that's exactly what what the internet exploded uh, and made possible uh, for everybody. I mean, I was just talking, um, you know, before about, you know, I have my list of, of people that I want to be able to work with uh, as a soloist. And uh, I can tell you that if... Um, if I just saw, you know, Brett Dubner playing this really cool piece on LinkedIn, um, he's going to be foremost in my mind when I'm thinking about soloists. And it's it's that kind of thing that can make or break a career. And it's really hard because it's also extremely esoteric. Like, you know, people come up to me and, and you know, they're, Brett was was talking about, you know, the possibility that, you know, it looks like you're just, you know, celebrating yourself on all of these platforms. No, um, I, I tell people, actually, a lot of these platforms, I, I, I don't I wouldn't even be on them uh, if it, if I wasn't trying to market myself. And uh, it's really just about marketing. And it's really important. You know, in some ways, Gabe, um, uh, it, it can be done in a, um, <clears throat> a way that's a turnoff if, if you don't um, uh, shape it the, the right way. Right. So similarly, writing an introductory uh, letter to a conductor can seem like a boilerplate letter that's not genuine. So there is some uh, time intensity aspect to this. You know, you want to... Uh, for all you young soloists out there or string quartets out there that are trying to, to, to make a career, it's really important to do the legwork and investigate a little bit the conductor you want to work with. What are they What are they good at? What are they known for? What's their orchestra's um, demographics? What about the audience? You know, um, uh, things like that. Um, so it helps you uh, impress upon them that it's a good match. So it's really important for the soloist to do a lot of work as well. And I've found through doing this now um, uh, for a long time that it's it's a skill like any other skill. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, I wasn't talking on these kinds of shows, you know. Now, now it happens all the time. 
And it's a lot of fun because it's a chance to also um, not inspire, because I don't think of myself as in inspire quality, but someone who can perhaps motivate people to think that way. Because if I can do it, they can certainly do it. Well, and the 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 interesting thing that you touched on, I think, was um, really in in your marketing, and this I I think should be true in marketing across the board. You really have to be authentic, yeah. and if if you're not, then people can see that pretty right. easily. Right. It's true. It's true. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about that marketing. Brett, you recently launched a brand new website, didn't you? I just did my annual spring cleaning, yes, or winter cleaning. <laughs> talk to us a little bit about it. We're going to bring it up here on the video. And, of course, you can find all the videos over here on The Art of Listening. How did you come up with this? What was your thought process? How are you marketing yourself through the website? Well, so, um, you know, the website that I had the last year was getting old. Um, even though this is still the era of COVID, I'm still playing a lot for, for violists, certainly. And so um, what I like to do is I like to put relevant things that I've done up there. Um, because when you're reaching out to a conductor, if they're interested, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to go to your website. Right. So I needed to do that. And in Latin America, um, for instance, um, the concert season kind of is like our financial year, whereas for Europe and America, the concert season is the academic year. So you have basically two beginnings. So mm -hmm. I use the Christmas time as a chance to start thinking about the next season for them. And I figured that was a good time because I've been spending a lot of time. I have an apartment in Sao Paulo. I'm there half the time. And I have a lot of uh, friends there and connections. And I wanted to use that opportunity to revamp the website. Um, I do my own um, texting, my own my, my own text, you know, bios and all that. Um, the, uh, um, the artwork, you know, I took the pictures myself. <laughs> I just use a tripod and I just do them myself. And um, I enjoy the creative process of designing websites and all that. It's a lot of fun. Um, and of course, the, the point, I think, similar to um, an introductory letter to a composer or a conductor on LinkedIn, your website also has to represent your personality. So I chose earth tones because I wanted it to be inviting and soothing as opposed to like slate or granite or kind of European black and white kind of, you know, hard edged. I, I feel this more represents my skin color, my tone and, and my personality. So one of the things that I try to do with this year's website is to put less on there, actually. That's been one of my challenges is when you have so much stuff you've done, you can, you can make it look like a messy sock drawer. And so it's really important to have it be clean and clear and very navigational, whatever that means, you know. <laughs> um, and so that's really important. I love the colors. I love the layout. We're going to make sure that the links are over here. Of course, this is brettdubner.com, a, a beautiful website showing off where, where he is, where he's going, all the works that he's doing, and all the pictures are absolutely amazing. And of course, we're going to make sure that there's links to all your YouTube videos and stuff over here on Art of Listening podcast, episode number 16. You know, Gabe, there's a lot of things that conductors can learn from soloists like Brett as far as marketing and making sure that they are getting not only their own orchestra, but also guest orchestra spots. I'm sure that some of these things can easily transfer from the soloist spot to the podium. Oh, absolutely. I think that... Uh, the, the, you know, the more you have these conversations and the more 
uh, you put yourself out there in that sense, uh, it it's going to yield very, very similar results. I love how Brett is, uh, you know, talking about really the the art of making making things less and making things smaller, and uh, you know, doing more with less. Really, I think is uh, an extremely important part of of making things extremely clear. That's for sure. Brett, if anybody is an up-and-coming musician or conductor, what advice would you have for them in trying to get into this whole social business? I would say um, don't be afraid of it. It's okay to make mistakes. People will um, correct you in a loving way. Some will correct you in a rude way, but that's that's the world. But it's all a learning experience. Um, one thing that I uh, tell my students at Queens College is um, – the word no very often means not yet. Yeah. And I think that's a very important lesson for anyone in the arts when you're essentially trying to sell yourself to get a job um, because you don't know what the other person is going through. Um, you don't know how busy they are. And so um, to that end, um, don't be afraid of it. Embrace it. It can be a reflection of who you are. It's just everyone can see it. So it's, it's a great way. Um, and, um, I think that's really helpful. I think also, um, uh, be persistent, but not in a nagging way. So for instance, I will send uh, an email out to 50 conductors, um, in one evening, and maybe I'll get 11 of them, um, which is far better than the corporate return of 2%. Right. And, and they'll, they'll say, great side, blah, blah, blah. Or, and maybe six of them will say, um, I'll definitely keep you in mind. And maybe two of them will say, how about next year? So right. in one evening, that's two, that's two gigs. Um, so, so then the others that didn't respond... Um, you know, I will I will reach out to them in a couple months and give an entirely different email that shows a, a particularly new piece that I just came back from playing, like Andre Myers concerto with the Michigan Phil, and a little video of a rehearsal. You know, I also do a lot of my own videography, so I'll film rehearsals and concerts and make a little two minute thing that I'll post on Instagram and on YouTube and everywhere. Um, so it's just a way to, to um, gently and in a friendly way um, keep me in their subconscious. And so then when the conductor's at a conductor's forum and, they, and my name comes up, oh, I know Brett, even though they've never worked with me, they know who I am. And this, this tactic really pays off because I remember courting one conductor for three years. And then one day out of the blue, he called and said, listen, I just want you to know what you've been doing is really brilliant. I really appreciate your marketing. Um, you should write a course on this. And then they said, you mm -hmm. have, you've been on my list for about three years. Here's the thing. I want you to be with all my orchestras next year. So I was selling with three of his orchestras next year. Yeah. It pays off to be persistent, but not in a, um, a negative kind of um, you know, annoying way. And that's hard because people take no personally. So it all comes back to the word no. No means not yet. Um, 
that if someone takes the time to say no, that's like getting to third base, basically. <laughs> right, right. No, and it you're touching on you know what we were talking about before that ha- having your name and your likeness and your playing and and all of that in people's you know subconscious so that you know when when the time comes right. uh you know three years from now you'll you'll get the gig right we've been talking today to violist brett dubner and brett you know i'd like to say thank you for being here i hope this isn't the last time you come on um certainly within three years we'd love to have you back on the show <laughs> right. before we let you go there is a tradition that i have here and i you know we're both from new jersey I call this the Jersey Seven. Seven questions that get to uh, get to oh, the heart of who our guest is. Brett, I know I'm putting you on the spot. Oh my Would God. you be interested in taking the Jersey Seven? Uh, I will try. <laughs> I warn you, oh, the I questions start easy. So. The That's questions great. start a little easy, but they get harder as they go on. And uh, remember, we're on camera. Here we go. Uh, question number one: Your favorite piece to play as a viola soloist. My favorite piece to play is the piece that I have to play next. Mm-hmm. You got to change your answer for this one. <laughs> your favorite piece to play as a viola sectionalist? In the orchestra. In the orchestra. Um, favorite piece. I, I think my, um, I gravitate towards different composers depending on this, that time of my life. So right now I've been on a huge Bruckner kick. I love Bruckner. Nice, nice. Uh, number three, one piece you'd want to bring with you to play on a desert island if you only had one piece. There's a piece that I just recorded um, a few weeks ago from my new solo album, and this piece is by Polina Nazikinskaya. She's from uh, Moscow. She teaches up in New Haven, and she wrote this piece called Hope for Solo Viola. And it's about the life of David Arben, the violinist from Philly Orchestra, who um, survived three different Polish concentration camps and his family didn't. And this piece was about his surviving and then uh, escaping and going to Curtis and becoming a violinist. So it's all about hope and perseverance. So that's probably right now my favorite piece. It's like the Chaconne for viola on steroids. Wow. That's amazing. I'll send you a link to it. <laughs> I would love to put that in, in into our show notes here. Okay. Uh, let's see. Question number four. Favorite brand of strings? Well, d- the Daddario uh, Kaplan um, Amos are what I use. I'm endorsed by them. So um, I, I, I love those strings. I've used a lot of different strings. These really work with the viol that I currently play on. Nice. Uh, number five, what do you shop for in a viola? Uh, if, if you're a, a, let's, let's not take the $40,000 instruments, right? But like, yeah. Hey, I'm a parent. My kid has an instrument. What do I go shop for? So for the students, like the pre-college, but serious students, I think what's really important is that the violist does not fall into the traditional trap of playing a big viola. There is this really unfortunate way of thinking that the viola must sound like a cello. Play a cello if you want to sound like a cello. (laughs) No matter how small the viola is, it will never sound like a violin. And so you don't have to be afraid of, oh, it sounds too bright. Play a violin and it won't sound bright. Um, So I think what's really important is that it's not so big that you can't play an octave, that you can't hold the viola up, 
and that you have all of these bad habits that seem institutionalized, like it's important to play like you're a paraplegic. No, it's actually not the way to play. You should play like a violinist, have a really good posture, look at pictures of William Primrose. That's how you should play. Right. You, know, you should play like this. You should play like this. Um, so, to, so to that end, uh, it should be light. Very often, inexpensive instruments are very thick, meaning the, the, the wood is very heavy. And so I would say it's very important to find uh, an instrument that's very light. The wood is light, not heavy, and not too big. So if you're under the age of 13, you know, maybe a 14 and a half or 15 inch viola is fine. Yeah. You know, Paul, Paul Doctor and Primrose, they both had 15 and a half inch violas from Amati. Hmm. It's, it's, it actually is an amazing sound. My viola is 16 and an eighth, which is the size that Strad made of his seven violas. Oh, wow. Um, it's a very small viola, but it's an extremely powerful viola. And what I say to students and parents, if you're relaxed, then you can make a lot of colors. But if you're playing this gigantic viola just because you like the deep sound, that one sound that everyone gravitates to is the one sound that is easily covered by any other instrument. Right. <laughs> so you want a bright viola. <laughs> that is an awesome answer. I, I wish I had uh, that answer back in undergrad when I was shopping last. Uh, two more questions for you. These are the hard ones here, so get ready. Uh, the thing you're most proud of doing musically? I think the thing I'm most proud of is when I play a piece and the orchestra enjoyed the chamber music quality of that performance and everyone comes off the stage feeling like we did something great together and the orc and the audience felt like it was a compelling story and the conductor or the composer like that was exactly what i wanted to say that's probably when i'm in my happy place that's awesome all right the last question here and we'll see how you do with this this is the question that i've asked every major performer, every major educator I've ever done a podcast with, and I'm looking forward to hearing your answer. You are a musician. You are a teacher. You are a performer. What is the best teachable moment you've ever had? I think for me, the, the, the um, uh, one that stands out was my very first time playing a concerto in Ecuador. I was there to premiere a new concerto by a Cuban composer, and I was there for about four days teaching and playing master classes and recitals, and finally we got to the day of the first rehearsal, and the conductor says, it's so nice to finally meet you. Unfortunately, we can't play your piece. Like, oh, really? Why is that? He goes, well, we never received the music. Now, of course, I'm American, right? It was my first time in this country, and my instinct was to get all American on him and say, why didn't she let me know? I could have, you know, I was thinking of solutions. I was basically in a, my temptation was to be kind of condescending and say, we could have solved this. So the teachable moment was that I didn't do that. And instead I found a solution. I said, well, listen, what can we play? What do you have in your library? Well, we have the Telemann. Perfect. So I went to their library. I found the Telemann. They didn't have the solo part. Now, I've taught the piece forever. Like, I've taught it since Telemann was alive, practically. But I've never played it in a, in a, in a performance before, right? Wow. And so I'm like, I don't have the piece. I went on to 
Sheet Music Plus, and of course I couldn't remember my password for the life of me. I was I needed a Kyperina like you would not believe. So finally, I I remembered my password. I downloaded the part, and it had the different cadenzas. So anyway, that night in my hotel room, I'm just practicing and practicing. The next morning, we have a rehearsal with the orchestra. The orchestra is terribly embarrassed because they knew why I was supposed to be there. But I wasn't going to be indignant. I wasn't going to be like a soloist, you know, diva, like, oh, you guys all suck because I didn't, you know, no. We played music together and they applauded at the rehearsal. We, we made friends. I took advantage of that week together. I met with another conductor and say, hey, I'm here this week playing this. Within five minutes, he invited me to play with his orchestra later that year. We did the Telemann concerto that evening for a full house. It was televised. I made friends. So, so the long story really means be able to adjust to your environment. And I think that's the most important thing as soloists. We're there to make music, to tell a story, and to work together. And you're a guest. You're a guest. It's not about you. Even Telemann, it's about Telemann. And I think because of that uh, life lesson for me, uh, I've been able to go with the flow and make something positive out of any crazy experience. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the, you know, a, a short version would be really uh, put the music first. Just put the music first every time, and you won't go wrong. Always. Right. That is an amazing story. And, and I think that's actually thinking back now, that's probably how I found you. I was doing a search for Telemann viola concertos. And I think I probably found your video and I'm like, that is an amazing cadenza where you just like, I've never heard that. And it looked just like you, like I've been teaching it. I've been playing it. It was the first thing I did in third grade. It was the district audit, like the Telemann concerto, of course. But yeah. I'm like, here's a guy that made the Telemann concerto a professional piece and it sounds professional. I'm like, I just remember my jaw dropping going, that's cool. Well, I love Telemann. Telemann's water music is such a great piece. Oh. Telemann is great. I love his music. I actually teach his fantasies for viola more than the cello suites because I think they're essentially, it's like a big violin, right? So yeah. playing violin pieces on viola, I think is, is a lot more potential than playing a cello piece on viola. Right. Brett, I know uh, we would love to obviously have you back on the show at some time. Please don't be a stranger here. Brett, where can anybody go and learn more about the great things that you're doing in this world? And uh, what was that website again? Uh, it's really simple. It's so that I could remember it. It's brettdubner.com. <laughs> Brett, thanks so much, man. It's been a pleasure. And uh, don't be a stranger here. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Art of Listening. Thanks for inviting me. And nice to see you again, Gabe. Nice to see you. Gabe, you know, when it comes to being both a soloist and a conductor, I think the one thing that is clear, this is a collaboration, right? You can't just go in here saying it's us and them. Everybody has to come together to put on really that amazing performance. I loved everything that Brett just said. What did you take out of this interview? You know, I think I, I learned a lot uh, about marketing, uh, first of all. And uh, second, I I think that what he was talking about before, how the word concerto can mean against, but the word concert means together. That really, to me, exemplifies what a concerto is all about. It's this, you know, tug of war that occurs where you're actually all supposed to be in the end saying the same thing.
So I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Art of Listening. Don't forget to head on over to gabrielgordon.net and check out this. All of our links are going to be in our show notes for episode number 16. We are available twice a month and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, anywhere you are. And on behalf of Gabe and everybody here at The Art of Listening, my name is Jeff Bradbury. Enjoy the music. <laughs> 